Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Let's go. What's cracking, everyone? The waiting is the hardest part. And if you're the Las Vegas Aces, you don't have to wait any longer. Welcome to Screaming from the Sidelines, episode number four. We have an awesome guest joining us shortly, but let's start off by discussing the finale to a thrilling WNBA postseason. So the Las Vegas Aces, the dream season is complete. They're the WNBA champs. They defeated the Connecticut Sun 78-71 to in game four. They had the best regular season record, the coach of the year, defensive player of the year, most improved player, MVP, and now the first major professional sports title for the city of Las Vegas. Chelsea Gray led the way in game four with 20 points and six assists. But late in the game, it was actually Raquana Williams, who was the hero, hitting clutch shot after clutch shot. And she finished with a season high 17 points. And we've said this many times on the show now, but this is why the Aces are so challenging to beat. You're on the road. Your opponent is on the ropes, so they're playing with nothing to lose. Asia Wilson isn't scoring like crazy, only had 11 points. Kelsey Plum isn't lighting you up on offense like she was doing in game two. Jackie Young was good, but not spectacular. And someone who was not even a top five scorer for this team in the regular season goes out and torches you like they've been drawing up plays for her all week. So... Pretty incredible effort by those girls from Las Vegas and Chelsea Gray. We're going to have to talk about her because she was named the finals MVP. You know, she was only the fourth leading scorer for the Aces in the regular season. But in this entire postseason, she was the second leading scorer and the most for her team. Only Brianna Stewart was averaging more per game. She also was the second leader in assists. Here's what's crazy, though. She shot 61% in the postseason and 54% from three, neither of which are human, especially for a guard. So those marks are by far better than anyone who took a large volume of shots. Asia Wilson was the next best player who took a lot of shots, and she was at 55%. But again, she's getting a lot of those shots inside close to the basket. Uh, Sabrina Ionescu shot 53%, which is also spectacular, but she only played in a third of the games as Chelsea Gray. So for Chelsea Gray to play at that level sustained over a 10-game postseason span is just absolutely ridiculous. She's up on the podium and she said, they can keep that all-star and first team, I got the ring. So throwing a little bit of shade at all the people who had doubted her And just an incredible, incredible performance by Chelsea Gray to think that everything she battled back from and how hard she worked to get back in this position. They call her the point god. And I mean, you can't argue with that statement anymore. Kelsey Plum, her teammate, said earlier this year that Gray is the best point guard in the world and the most clutch player in the league There was a lot of clutch players throughout this playoffs, especially in that semifinal against the Storm. But Chelsea Gray was right up there with the best of them. And I just thought I would compare some of her postseason stats to NBA Finals MVP Stephen Curry. Points per game, Steph had her at 
27 and Chelsea Gray was nearly at 22. So Steph definitely had her there. The shooting marks, unsurprisingly, went to Gray. Uh, Steph was at 45% and 39 from three, which are also crazy numbers. But Chelsea Gray with the 61% overall and 54% from downtown, just ridiculous. Uh, She also had Curry on assists, seven assists per game to Curry's nearly six. And then for rebounds, it was Steph going above five per game, Chelsea Gray at 3.8. Steph also played double the games. He played 22 games, and she played 10. Yes, I know that's not exact math, but you get me. So to the scoring just makes it that much more impressive. But as you could see over time, it's hard to sustain that kind of level of shooting. Uh, as insane as Chelsea Gray was, it, she was able to shoot those marks over a 22-game span. I mean, that would have been unbelievable, but it is fun to just compare these two leagues and just the greatness that's coming out of both right now. And very happy for Chelsea Gray and the Las Vegas Aces, as I was incredibly happy for the Golden State Warriors. Becky Hammond had a historic first season. She is the first rookie head coach to win a WNBA title. And just a fun fact, since we're talking about both leagues right now, Uh, Just five rookie coaches in the NBA have done that in the past 60 years. Three of them actually pretty recently. It was Nick Nurse for the Raptors in 2019. Then you had Ty Lue for the Cavaliers in 2016. You had Steve Kerr in 2015. And the other two are Pat Riley and Paul Westhead. By the way, the Celtics' Ime Udoka was also a rookie head coach who got to the finals and was two games away from becoming the sixth rookie head coach to get that done. But I mean, let's talk about it with Becky Hammond. Like, the Aces had the highest field goal percentage in the postseason, 48%. They had the second highest free throw percentage at 83. And it was just all around a winning mentality that went from the top all the way down to the bottom. And so I really liked how Becky Hammond talked about all the time she felt rejected or not picked and how those experiences created something within her that were vital for the next challenge. So. She said, it was not about proving other people wrong. It's about proving myself right. And just contrast that with the type of talk you hear from athletes. Not that they are necessarily wrong for doing that, but uh, you just don't hear that kind of talk a lot in sports. So it's it's a nice breath of fresh air for uh, somebody like Becky Hammond to just do it for herself. If you're an athlete, also, I get it being so competitive as you are and always wanting to win. You're always going to think about the people who doubted you when you're working that hard all the time. But I do really appreciate the Becky Hammond mentality of just proving herself right. You don't have to worry about the outside world. Nobody cares about the WNBA. They shouldn't have a woman head coach. Oh, she's not going to be able to succeed just because she came from Greg Popovich staff, blah, 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 blah. Awesome, awesome job by Becky Hammond. I don't think there's anything Anyone could hardly say to discredit her for what she did in that first season. And I know it goes well beyond her uh, into ownership, team presidents, uh, the entire roster of the Las Vegas Aces, and they're going to be back. But let's bring in our guest right now. So I'd like to bring in somebody who's covered sports both in the Bay Area and nationally for longer than I've been alive. She's worked for the Athletic, the Oakland Tribune. San Francisco Examiner, Chronicle, ESPN.com, you name it. Now she is at the next. 
and the Pac-12. Her Twitter handle is at MacSmith413. And she is Michelle Smith, and she is now a part of Screaming from the Sidelines. So thank you for your time. Super excited to be here. Let's scream. (laughs) (laughs) Let's scream. So uh, actually, that's a good place to start because uh, I try to spend as little time on Twitter as possible because that is just kind of an infuriating platform. But uh, I was stalking your page a little bit, admittedly, and then I saw some really funny tweets yesterday where uh, you're just kind of mocking the fact that nobody cares about women's basketball and in particular the WNBA but then you know we got all these stats so let's just do a quick breakdown of WNBA viewership on the Disney networks in 2022 full season up 22 percent most in 16 years postseason up 22 percent most in 15 years semifinals up 45 percent most in eight years opening round up 50 percent most in 15 years all-star game up 53 percent the most in seven years mm-hmm. and the draft up 20% most in 18 years, but still somehow, some way nobody cares. So let's talk about the most ins because most in this many years, let's talk about how many more choices viewers have than they had 16 years ago, 14 years ago, eight years ago, right? Let's talk about how those numbers are higher than they've been in a really long time in a landscape, in a landscape where people have streaming options, where they have all of these places to go. So really the strength in those numbers is even more impressive to me, given that how much the media landscape, particularly those ones most in 16 years, 16 years ago, we were dealing with basic cable and three networks still for the most part, right? No, no streaming, no places to pull people away. So those numbers are really, really muscular and they're really impressive. And it does, it speaks to where the WNBA is at this moment in particular, and even the college women's basketball numbers have been up. Women's basketball has been growing and it's a part of a larger conversation about investment and exposure and what happens when you expose, what happens when you invest. This idea that, you know, I mocked the idea that nobody cares because it is a refrain that we hear at the end of Every, you know, you post something about the WNBA and that first response from Neanderthal Nation is nobody cares. But we know that's actually not true. We know that plenty of people care. We looked at the crowds in Vegas yesterday and that was one of the things I tweeted was the huge crowd they had in Vegas for the ACES championship. These viewership numbers, the fact that social media for the league is growing, like it's, it's literally not true that nobody cares. We've had huge crowds. And I would even say, but some of that extends broadly in women's sports. If you look at, for example, there was a volleyball match in Nebraska last week, which was the largest crowd they've ever had for a volleyball match in NCAA history during the regular season. There is a space for women's sports and women's basketball in particular for the sake of the show. When you invest and when you expose, people are interested. Not everybody, but I would just say, you know, if it's not your jam, turn the channel. It's, you know... I'm not a big NFL person right now. I don't have, you know, it's sacrilege to say it, but I'm not that compelled. I'm not that interested for whatever reason right now. I just don't watch. I don't get on Twitter. I don't get on social and drag and say they shouldn't exist. Nobody cares. Why are you putting this in front of me, right? Like make your choices. But to empirically say nobody cares about WNBA or women's basketball right now is just simply not true. A hundred percent. And you know, it's really inspiring to see the ways in which it's grown. But I also want to backpedal somewhat because 
you have been covering women's sports and just basketball as a whole for mm-hmm. so long. And so a lot has changed between probably when you started up with this okay. and now. Do you have any like specific memories or moments that just really illustrated the challenges of being a woman in the sports world who advocated for women's sports? Yeah, I mean, I can share, you know, I'll share a little bit of a starting point. So my first assignment um, was my first assignment was to go cover a Stanford women's basketball game. And the reason that I got the assignment was because the other woman on our staff left the paper and I was the only woman left. So apparently I was the obvious person to go cover women's basketball. Right. So let's start with being there 28 years ago or whatever, where if you were a woman, you got assigned to cover women's sports because there was an assumption. I assume uh, there was an assumption. I assume that we were most we were more interested or that having a woman's byline on women's sports was the way it was supposed to be. So we'll start from that point. Um, We got to a point, I mean, I have covered women's basketball and women's sports for a long time. And, you know, it's gotten to, you know, there was a point where I want to say in the mid, mid, you know, maybe late 90s, early 2000s, where at a final four, and you would go to Stanford, the final four and the press room, there just weren't a lot of people there. And you wondered where everybody was, right? And you know, at the men's final four, they're jam packed in like sardines, and there's the places full and they're using domes and whatever. And there were literally just not a lot of media there. And you walked, you wandered around and went, okay, so when, so for example, if you work for the San Francisco Chronicle and Stanford loses, you go home, who's there to cover the championship game, the biggest game of the year in the sport. And there's fewer people there even to see it than there were the night before, because there just weren't a lot of media. Um, The, you know, the addition of different media outlets, the creation of people's you know, websites, the place, the place I work for now, the next is founded by a guy named Howard Megdahl, who's pretty prolific freelance writer around the country, but who put together a stable of young writers and put people on beats. And he's building something that's getting a larger audience and more traction, but covering the game comprehensively, the addition of sites like that have brought more people in. I want to say really interestingly, during COVID and during that COVID season, which ended um, for in a local standpoint with Stanford winning national championship after spending whatever it was, 90 days on the road and with the health protocols and things. But the Zoom options have actually really opened the door as well in an interesting way. More people can cover without having to be there. I know so many people for so many years who paid their way to the NCAA tournament their own way or to games that they were going to cover and they traveled and they, you know, they road tripped it and whatever. And that was also happening a lot. And now this Zoom options or, you know, this teleconferencing option has really opened up the space for more people as well. You don't have to be there to cover it. You don't have to, you know, it's just, it's opened up the space a lot. And the players, I think, have been really intentional about opening up their own spaces, whether they're using the Players' Tribune, whether they're pushing their own social, their branding, And I think that's only going to get bigger with NIL too. You've got athletes, even at the college level, I think Paige Becker's in Connecticut. She's out this year with a knee injury, but she just signed an NIE deal with Bose, right? And so I think that there are all sorts of ways that the space is being expanded in a way and everybody's covering the game. It's not just, you know, who's the woman on your staff, send her to the game because that's what I think we're supposed to do, right? Like we really have come a long way, but it's it's ebbed and flowed a lot because there was a time when newspapers were starting to get in financial trouble. And the first thing that they would cut out is coverage of women's sports. 
It wasn't, you know, you weren't covering coverage of your NFL, your local NFL team or your local NBA team. It was your women's sports team you weren't going to cover. So we've really watched this roller coaster ride of media attention and coverage. And it's really on a decisively upswing that I'm excited about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, and it's cool to see the way in which it has expanded. Last week, we had Nick Hamilton on the show who's covered sports all over LA, but he's also been covering the Aces for three years. So he was a great person Mm -hmm. to discuss with the now champions Mm -hmm. and really exciting stuff. So we talked about the NFL a little bit. And one thing that I was really interested in over this last weekend was I tweeted out on Sunday that it was a shame that the WNBA finals overlapped with NFL Sunday and two of the four games because the fourth quarter sequence was exciting to watch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, somebody had the clever response of like, how could the WNBA have known that there would be football on Sunday, which I actually thought was pretty funny. I'll I'll give them credit. But it does lead me to my next question, which is like, I don't know the ins and outs of pro sports deals with TV networks. And Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you've explored a ton of this either, but why do you think that Disney decided to like counter program their games and go against a giant like the NFL? Well, I think some of it is, and we've did that. We've done this and had this conversation for a really long time. ESPN and Disney has been very committed to women's basketball in the WNBA in terms of being a rights holder, right? They have covered the game for as long as anyone. They cover all of the NCAA tournament games, whatever. But as that rights holder, it's their, it's their open time slots and they don't have NFL on Sundays, right? They have open slots on Sundays. They have ABC slots, slots on Sundays that are open during the NFL season because they don't have the NFL. And under the terms of the rights deal with the WNBA right now, the WNBA gets put in that slot. So you've got, it's a two, it's a double-edged thing, right? So you're going up against the NFL, but you're also on a network on ABC. ABC has been doing games for the last couple of years, first time on the networks in a really long time. And, you know, and not on ESPN two or whatever. And, you know, just in terms of exposure and network, you know, big three network exposure. And so it's been a trade for the WNBA. And I think they want to get out of this space. And, but I, they're going to need a new rights deal to do it. And their, their rights deal is still a couple of years away, but they've got into all sorts of spaces that, you know, they've got games that are on Facebook. They have games that are on Amazon Prime. There are games that end up airing on, well, they've got NBA TV, obviously, ESPN. They have, um, they've got games airing on Twitter. They're using other platforms to air those games, but you're still getting so much bang for the buck by being on ABC. But there's not leverage right now for the league. They're in the middle of a deal that's not quite close to the end. I don't think they like it this way. I don't think the players like it this way. But it's the time slot that's open. And that's always been the case for women's sports and women's basketball, especially in the fall and the winter. When the collegiate season starts, you're going to see, you know, big deal games. You know, you'll see, I don't know, you're going to see a South Carolina Stanford game that's going to be counter-programmed against the NFL in November. I'm sure of it, right? Like that's... That's what women's basketball, those are the choices that are made for women's basketball based on media rights and who programs them. So I don't think anybody loves it, but it's not the WNBA's choice to go on a Sunday afternoon at noon in the fall. Um, The other thing to remember, and this is a little bit inside baseball, but the WNBA schedule moves every couple of years because of either um, the World Cup tournament or the Olympics. And so that schedule sort of shifts. And so Sometimes it doesn't shift as far into the NFL season as it did this year. 
you know, but it's just, it's about leverage and it's about what's available. And I think the WNBA would say we would rather be on ABC on even on an NFL Sunday and take our chances. And the thing is the ratings are, the ratings are growing. They're not, I mean, we just cited all of those ratings through Disney and stuff, right? Like they're not, you know, they're, it's not an NFL audience, but they're not getting hammered. They're holding their own. Yeah. I had a fun little setup this last weekend with a couple of friends. They were 49ers fans. So we had like one TV up with red zone channel, another TV below with just the 49er game. And then I had my laptop in front of it all with mm-hmm. game four of the finals. So it was, yeah. I mean, multitasking, they say it's not necessarily effective. I don't know if it was effective, but <laughs> at the very least, it was a really great photo op. And yeah. so I had to take advantage of that. Awesome. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, all right, here's the deal. Like we are a basketball show above yeah. all. So I'll just like, rewind way back to like three decades ago but what is it about this awesome game that drew you in to the point that you want to make a career out of it yeah um so that first Stanford game that I got assigned to cover so I was an athlete in high school I was not a basketball player I could not do a three-man weave I could not my brain couldn't do it and so but I played softball I was a softball player for a long time so I was a high school athlete um who played a little bit after high school but not collegiately and I walked into Maples Pavilion, which at the time, right, like they had just come off a couple national championships. The place was absolutely full at Maples. It was still the time with the bouncy floor and only old people will know what I meant, but the floor at Stanford used to bounce and it was a thing. Um, And the band was there playing and they were introducing the women's team. And it was just, I was blown away that this was for the women. Like I, there, there was just part of me and I'm a title nine baby. I, you know, I grew up in that, you know, Title IX passed when I was, you know, a preschooler, basically. Um, But the fact that this was for the women and that this much attention, this much audience, like it was really from then I was hooked. And then you talk to the athletes and then you talk to these brilliant young women who are, you know, and in the case of being lucky enough to cover Stanford, so accomplished and, you know, and, and, but I have found that female athletes, they were always appreciative of the coverage because they always didn't get a lot of it. They were, most of them weren't going on to play professionally. The WNBA didn't start until 97, right? So they were in college to get degrees. And it was just such a pleasure to talk to them, to hear their stories, to understand their experience and understand that that experience likely was going to come to an end the day they walked off the court or their last day of their senior year of college. Um, as my friend, M.A. Vopel, who received the Gaudi Award in the Hall of Fame um, last couple of weeks ago, as he said in his speech, now we get to write the whole story, right? Like it's not just the end. Uh, it doesn't end at the end of the collegiate career, right? Now there are these athletes and you get to follow them through their entire career. Sue Bird is beloved because we have gotten to see an entire career of excellence, right? She's retiring at 41 years old. She played in the lead longer than anybody one of the league's most accomplished players, but had time to build that reservoir of love and respect and admiration because she got to play so long. If she, if these were, if this was 30 years ago, the college season ends and she might go overseas and play for a couple of seasons. And then she goes, and then she takes her degree and she goes and she finds a job, right? Like that's what, that's the difference. That's the huge difference is that you get time to be attached. You get time to, you know, have these resumes, Diana Tarazi, Sylvia Fowles. I mean, 
You talk about the players, you know, I think we're waiting a little bit to see if Candace Parker wants to play next season. And that's another player who has this ridiculous resume, this huge body of work. And all, and we didn't have that 30 years ago. We didn't have players that had this kind of body of work. I do like that you mentioned the aspect of players still having to play overseas, even though we've seen some positive growth. And I mean, the whole Brittany Griner getting detained in Russia, that is an entirely separate podcast on its own. Yes. But I was trying to explain that to my mom, who doesn't watch like a ton of NBA, but because we all watch the Warriors very closely, she's watched a lot of Warriors games with us. And I was explaining to her, I'm like, it's not like if, not quite like if Steph Curry was detained overseas to make extra money, but like definitely someone the status above Clay Thompson, NBA equivalent, mm -hmm. which is really wild to think that right. it wasn't just a WNBA player who was struggling to make a roster right. and unfortunately got in that situation. It's somebody who wasn't getting paid enough, even playing at a very high level. And she got, and you know, and yes. And so she was making probably, you know, she was making a million dollar salary in Russia where she's making a quarter of that in the WNBA. I mean, that's been the case for a long time. Diana and Sue played in Russia forever and will tell you that they are financially secure for the rest of their lives because of the time they played in Russia, right? And and were treated really, really incredibly well. But, you know, I mean, the profile of Brittany Griner and this whole detention thing, you know, they detained her because of her profile as a women's basketball player, right? They weren't they were not going to get nearly as that government was not going to get nearly as much mileage detaining a less high profile player. And Brittany represents a lot of things. Not only does she represent high profile, you know, a high profile, well-known American player, but she's a six foot seven black LGBTQ woman who is, you know, a little bit of the antithesis of everything that that government is trying to work for and push forward. And so, you know, what's happening with Brittany is so scary and it's so, and everybody prays every day and hopes that she's going to get home soon. Um, but it's incredibly difficult. It was, I will share that it was really disappointing for me. And I tweeted this last night to see how many players are still going to go over there and, and understanding that it's about their money and paying for their families, but also understanding the power in my mind of people saying, we won't go play there. And those team owners feeling pressure because they want American players on their rosters to sell their tickets and to, you know, to play in their leagues and to say, no, we won't go until you send her home. Like that would have been really powerful. And that's not where we are. And that's disappointing for me. Absolutely. I can understand the difficulty between having to look out for your own financial situation, but also trying to stand for something a little bit greater and uh, to go play in Russia. I could see how that is just very controversial on many levels, but yeah. as you mentioned, we're praying every single day that Brittany Griner can get home safely and that something like this doesn't have to happen in the right. future of pro sports or, I mean, really just human rights in general. Right. Uh, moving to something a little bit lighter because, yeah. you know, beyond basketball, we're also a betting show. And yeah. I mean, the season just ended like Sunday. And yeah. here we are on Wednesday and we're talking about it. But I am curious to know if you have like a way too early pick as a potential contender for the 2023 title. Well, it's really hard not to look at the aces again, right? I mean, they locked everybody down. And Mark Davis, you know, the Raiders owner, and he's been dragged as a Raiders owner for, you know, a long time. But he has earnestly invested in the aces. And he 
has signed most of his key players to contract extensions. And so they are going to be intact. Free agency is going to come up and players are going to move around and there's going to be some instability with some other teams, but not a lot of instability in Las Vegas. And there's a lot to be said for that in a short season in the WNBA to have your players come back and be together because it does go fast. It's 34 to 40 games. It's a quick training camp. It's players coming from their overseas and coming together quickly to have that core group of people together. It's hard not to see the aces as a favorite. And especially when you see some of the, you know, elite teams, Chicago won last year, but they've got, you know, Courtney Vandersloot and Candace Parker and Allie Quigley are all free agents and those are core players. And so what happens with them? Um, Seattle, Sue Bird retires and Brianna Stewart only signed a one-year contract this year. And she's from New York. So there's a lot of people speculating she might want to go play closer to home. She's one title, but like there's among that top group, there's going to be some instability that Las Vegas just isn't going to experience. I would agree that there's no reason to look at the aces and see why they couldn't go repeat when you have that kind of core before I brought you in on the show, I mentioned Raquana Williams being the one to put the nail in the coffin in the final. And like, that wasn't even a top five scorer for them in the right. regular season. Right. And then she was the one that sort of rose to the occasion along with Chelsea Gray. And so, yeah, the aces I could talk about all day. If I had to bring in another team that I would say I like as maybe a legitimate contender and a challenger for the Acers, I'm probably looking at the Washington Mystics because yeah. – well, a few reasons. Like, number one, they matched up well with Vegas this last year. They beat them all three times. Mm-hmm. Only team to do that. Uh, Elena Deladon is going to be a year further removed from her back injury. And then on top of that, Shakira Austin just had a fantastic rookie season and fit in perfectly with her role in Washington. So I just expect that role to grow even yeah. more in 2023. But there's a lot more information we're going to learn with free agency and players maybe choosing to retire and whatnot. So that's my way too early. Elena's back health is always just going to be, it's always just going to be the question mark, right? Like she, they have, they used her really purposefully this year. She didn't always, you know, she sat out some games, they rested her, you know, Elena's health is the key to whether or not Washington is a contending team. But I agree. I think they have pieces. They have the winningest coach in the history of the league and Mike Tebow, who's just so good at what he does. But it's all about Elena Deladon's health, always. Yeah, when you have a player that special and that talented who has had a history of injuries, then, of course, that's always going to be a big deal. You know, look at the NBA. I mean, Kevin Durant is the difference between whether the Brooklyn Nets could go win a title or be a complete dumpster fire because it's impossible to trust the rest of that organization and roster at the moment. But, yeah, so, I mean, you know, like I know your work extends just beyond the world of sports. And mm-hmm. so before I let you go, I just want to give you an opportunity to discuss anything you've been focusing on more recently, whether that is related to sports or not. Yeah, you know, um, I do. So I have a, um, I work full-time at San Jose state. And so um, at in working in their media relations department. And so that is a different, it's just a completely different sort of universe from what I do in sports, but I think in the sports world, I'm just going to share, I think that what's happening with the Pac-12 right now and how it impacts women's basketball, knowing what a strong conference it's been. I just got, I just had a conversation with um, the UCLA and USC coaches, Lindsey Gottlieb and Corey Close about the move to the Big 12. They're two of the biggest cheerleaders the Pac-12 has had 
and to our Big Ten, I'm sorry, and having them move to the Big Ten and what that means and um, what it means for the conference. And, you know, this is just a really, it's just a power conference in the country. And to have this sort of instability injected into it, I think is going to be really interesting to watch. And you've got programs like Arizona. And so I'm watching closely what's going to happen with the Pac-12 and the Big Ten situation. I think that's the one that I think is going to be a really intriguing scenario. And then the other thing I'm just really interested to see is, you know, the power of the student athlete and with NIL and with the transfer portal and how much more leverage student athletes have around determining where they want to play, how they want to play, how much they get to play. Um, And I think that's a double-edged sword as well. I think it's great for the student athletes, but if you're a coach right now, if you're Tara Vandeveer and you've coached all these years and you're now going to coach with the idea that players, if they don't get the PT that they want, are going to hit the transfer portal and you know, I don't know. I just think it's really, really an interesting time for collegiate sports and we're heading into the college season. So that's where my head's at right now. It's certainly an interesting time. I spent the last few years at UC Santa Barbara, which is like a good program, but in a mid-major conference. And what you saw mostly on the woman's side of it this year is that uh, UC Irvine was a team that was close to making March Madness and winning the conference tournament. And they had like their top four players all transfer out. Kayla mm-hmm. Williams actually went to USC to go play for Lindsay Gottlieb. She was the mm-hmm. freshman of the year in the conference. And so on one hand, it makes me happy for the players that they have the freedom to go and maximize like a really short college window that can be disrupted by injuries or as we saw COVID mm-hmm. things that are always unpredictable, but uh, it really is interesting when you look at the PAC 12 as well, because everyone thinks about football Mm-hmm. with UCLA and USC, but another sport that has really thrived as a Pac-12 is softball. I mean, mm-hmm. you get teams that aren't ranked because the competition is so high and right. they find their way to sneak into the College World Series like they did in this last year. I know Arizona was one of them. And so uh, it's not just going to have an impact beyond football and to go join the Big Ten. I I really don't really know what to make of the situation, but as someone who was raised to love the Pac-10 turned Mm -hmm. Pac-12, then it's really weird to think it might just blow up. Yeah, it's, you know, the other thing about the difference between, you know, this is all about football and there's no no debate about that. You know, football plays, you know, whatever, 10, you know, 10, 12 dates a year, right? Like, but you're talking about for some of these Olympic sports and these women's sports in particular, and even men's sports like baseball and things, the travel that it's going to have to endure to move geographically to a conference that's on the other side of the country and the amount of time people are going to miss in class, which I've heard is the point of collegiate sports, um, you know, but it's, you know, like, I just think the impacts on the other sports when you're making a football decision and it has such a profound impact on the other sports, I'm going to be really interested to see how it goes. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, it's going to be a lot that we're going to experience in the next couple of years. And I'm very curious, a little bit apprehensive, but very curious Mm -hmm. to see how it all shakes out. But I mean, thank you so much for all your time. I, every time I get a guest, I just, I'm impressed with how much smarter people are than I am and how much more they have to say. And so that was just incredible. Well, I appreciate it. You call me anytime you want to talk women's hoops. I always love to talk about it. Absolutely. Maybe I'll uh, get down and see a couple Cal or Stanford games this year and uh, just check out the whole scene. You got it. Awesome. Thank you, Michelle. And you you know, that is, uh, that's going to wrap up episode four today. And we're going to be back 
more. This is like the now we're in the month window between WNBA is over and the NBA is getting ready to run. So we're going to have all sorts of things coming for you. We're talking over under on wins, best MVP bets, maybe some sleeper playoff teams and much more. And if you have any ideas as a fan, you can always come at me on Twitter, uh, hopefully in a very kind and loving way. I'm, I'm a very soft person, so please do so. But uh, until next week, please enjoy yourself and uh, get ready for hoops. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.